This episode is supported by True Leaf Market, sellers of heirloom and organic garden seeds since 1974. We all know keeping your soil in good heart is vital for good harvests, and now is a great time to rehab your garden by growing a cover crop. Cover crops improve soil quality in a sustainable way, boosting biomass and soil bacteria, adding nutrients, attracting beneficial insects, improving soil structure, and so much more. To get your free PDF of True Leaf Market's Beginner's Guide to Growing Cover Crops, visit trueleafmarket.com and search for Cover Crop Guide. And you can order your cover crops online now at trueleafmarket.com using promo code OTL15 to save 15% on cover crop seeds. That's trueleafmarket.com. Enter OTL15 for 15% off cover crops. Some restrictions apply. See the show notes for details. plant fans my name is jane perone and this is on the ledge podcast yes i'm back how are you diddling i am diddling within acceptable parameters and i'm so delighted to be back with the first episode after my month-long break in August. And I've heard from many of you during my break about how much you were looking forward to this first episode. So welcome. Let's get on with some planty chat. And in this episode, I'll be talking to Lisa Eldred Steinkov about flowering houseplants, much overlooked and rather glorious in my opinion. And I think Lisa agrees. Plus, I'll be answering a question about intergeneric hybrids. Ooh. Couple of updates on things. Bad news first. I went away on holiday. I left my delightful little cute nubs of Euphorbia obesa and I forgot to do the plastic bag up properly and I came back to ghost euphorbia obesas. They totally got fried. It was very hot while I was away. And so they are gone. This is what sometimes happens when you're sowing things from seed. Really disappointing, but hey, it happens and I'll go again. Thanks to those of you who are continuing to use the OTL Sew Along hashtag and sharing your cool OTL Sew Along projects with me. It's always lovely to see. And Mary Stem UK on Instagram has been far more successful with their Euphorbia Obesa seedlings. Thank you for tagging me on that. Great to see that you've done so well with yours. And I'm going to have to try again next year after my disaster of frying my seedlings. And congratulations to listener Ezra, who managed to grow a syningia from seed and get first prize in its category at the Minnesota State Horticultural Society. Well done, Ezra. What a great performance. And my good news? Well, I came back from holiday to discover that my Hoya Velosa had produced a peduncle. 
Oh my gosh, this was exciting. So a peduncle is just a botanical term for the little stalk from which Hoyas produce flowers. They look a little bit like, well, on most Hoyas, they look a little bit like um, a cigarette with a burnt end. But on Villosa, they are kind of very long and strange looking so far. I've never even seen the flowers of Villosa as a photograph or a picture. So I'm really interested to see what these flowers are going to look like. I will keep you posted on that. And if you remember back to the Croton episode, my Croton, which struggled for a while, is finally doing well. I will post a picture of that on my Instagram the before and after, you can check me out on Instagram at j.l.perone. Now let's crack on with my interview today. I'm joined by Lisa Eldred-Steinkoff, aka the houseplant guru. Now you may remember Lisa from previous episodes. I talked to her about plants for low light many episodes ago, and she's back to talk about her new book, Bloom. Hi, everyone. I'm so happy to be here today. I'm Lisa Eldred Steinkoff, the houseplant guru, and um, I am excited to be talking to Jane on On the Ledge podcast about blooming houseplants. Yeah, let's get our houseplants blooming. In fact, just before I came in here to do this interview, my husband said to me, what are you talking about today? And I said, oh, flowering houseplants. And he said, this may seem like a stupid question, but don't all houseplants flower? And I was like, that's not a stupid question at all. That's a really sensible question. But I feel like houseplants that we grow specifically for their flowers are rather underrated. So I'm very glad that you've written this book that hopefully will start to change that. Why do you think the current trend for houseplants has somewhat left flowering houseplants behind? Well, I think... Well, number one, everybody's an aeroid crazy person right now. Um, and <laughs> those me. do flower. <laughs> me neither. They, I mean, I, I say that and then I look around and I'm like, oh, I quite have quite a few. But anyway, they're not, they're not <laughs> me. And they do flower, but if you're lucky, but usually not. But I think that everybody thinks that flowering houseplants are harder to grow. They need a, a greener thumb. I, I don't know what, they th- what they're thinking, but really there's a lot that are really easy to bring into bloom. And who doesn't want blooms? I think sometimes people think that leaves look somehow, there's a bit of a sort of a reputation of flowering houseplants as being kind of something your grandmother might grow. And I speak as somebody who's old enough to be a grandmother just about. I think like all fashions and trends, it changes and it's not based on any reality. It's just our preconceptions. Right. And there are just so many amazing flowering houseplants out there. I think there is start of change. I remember seeing an article about one of the trendy American publications online did a piece about African violets and how wonderful they are. And I thought, wow, things are changing. People are reassessing these plants, which is great. So that's hopefully your book will bring more change. I was so excited because in my new book, I asked them if I could have a picture, a picture my grandma took in probably, I don't even know, 40, 50 years ago. So just their little Kodak you know, camera. And it's a picture of her windowsill with all of her, with her African violets on in the kitchen. And I'm like, can I, can I use that? And they're like, yeah, you just, you know, I, we scanned it in. And so her picture is in my book of her little windowsill in her kitchen with, with her African violets, which she just doted on. She would be amazed at what there is now with the variegated, she didn't have variegated foliage. Some of those African violets, I wouldn't care if they never bloomed. They have such beautiful foliage. 
Yes, I agree. I agree. And you're right that I have precious memories as well of, of my mum growing African violets. I'm sure that she would say, oh, I'm terrible at growing them, but they always seem to do really well. In fact, when I visited her in Canada uh, in the spring, I repotted her African violet and they didn't have any plant pots. So I had to repot it into a yogurt pot with some holes <laughs> whacked in the bottom. Grandmas were in clay pots, which, you know, I've written a blog post about that because a lot of times if the leaves rest on that clay pot, the salts will disintegrate the leaf stem or the petiole, I should say. Then she had them in, we had margarine tubs over here, you know, little, mm-hmm. what our margarine always came in. And she, those were the saucers and she grew them beautifully there. And she was always starting new ones and baby, baby food jars with foil. And just run that past me again. So the, if they're in a terracotta pot, the salts will end up damaging the petioles of the yes. leaf stalks. So really... That's a reason not to put them to give them plastic instead. Then by this or, or ceramic. I would yes. I don't. I don't use uh, clay pots. I mean, I love clay pots, and a lot of people do use them. But if they, if they, and a lot of people bottom water African violets, so of course they're drawing those salts and those minerals up into the clay pot. And if it, you know, mm-hmm. it gets that right crusty stuff on the edge, if you let your African violet leaf sit on that or rest on that, it will collapse. Oh, that's interesting. I've never tried growing them in terracotta, so that hasn't been a problem. I do love terracotta. I grow all my cacti and succulents in them. But I did have a real struggle today trying to get a cactus, a baby golden barrel cactus out of a terracotta pot. And it was just a battle royal uh, with lots of me being spiked. But yes, (laughs) that's another story. Flowering houseplants, there's a huge spectrum that falls within this category Things that from everything from from orchids to gisneriads to gardenias and all kinds of plants, both trendy and perhaps overlooked in the current climate. What is it that you look for in a really good house plant, though, that one that flowers? I, I really lately have just been so into the scent, you know, and they bloom at night and I have my sunroom open to our family room where we're at at night. And the smell from the I don't know if you saw I have an epiphyllum oxypetalum. You know, the night blooming cereus that has been blooming, it's bloomed three times this year. And it, the, it's just like heaven out there. And then I have a Hoya pubicalix that is just, it only has like three or four blooms, but it's, it makes that whole room just smell amazing. So I, I never really thought about looking for scent, but now it's like, hmm, that's interesting. That's another thing to look for because who doesn't want something to smell really good? But I like them to bloom a long time. Like I know they are there in every grocery store now, pretty much every store you go to, but I love Phalaenopsis orchids. I mean, they just bloom forever. They are great plants. There's a reason why they're so popular, yes, right? Exactly. That they just are, make really good plants. Right. And as you say, those flowers just stick around so long. I have to say they're not the most attractive plant, which, you know, I don't think there's, well, I guess there are some ugly plants, but not really. I love them all. Once they're done flowering, then I, I move them to a different room. I just have them out when they're blooming. There are in this country a few scented phalaenopsis now. Have you had a chance to smell any of those? I haven't, but I guess I've never actually, I mean, it didn't, it wasn't enough smell to make me stop and like, oh, I smell something good in here. That's not the Hoya or not whatever else. But so I haven't. It's not that strong. It's not like a, you know, a Hoya flowering. Uh, It's more subtle, but it is nice. There's one which has got kind of a nutmeg scent and I love, I love the smell of nutmeg. I mean, like if I could spend the rest of my life living on one food, it would probably be custard tart. Oh. And the smell of nutmeg <laughs> just drives me mad. So, yeah, that one's a really nice one. And it's got a kind of got a nutmeggy pale apricot petals as well. 
Um, but I don't know how widely available that one is. But yeah, it's it's subtle. It's a little bit subtle, but it is nice. But it's a very personal thing, scent, isn't it? And for some people, one person's delicious scent is another person's, oh my gosh, that smells like damp washing that's been left too long or something. <laughs> yeah, I find that with Hoyas particularly that some people find certain scents just really unpleasant ones that I quite enjoy. And, you know, that reminds me of lilies. You know, some people love the smell of like star grazer lilies. To me, it's it's a funeral flower. You know, don't don't hate me. I yeah. love them outside. I do, but I don't want them in my house. The gardenia is pretty strong. Um, so some people don't like that. But it, I don't know. It just brings some of it just brings back good memories of other things. Takes you right back. Indeed, indeed. And those are definitely two qualities we can appreciate. Scent and also length of flowering. I guess the other thing is there are certain house plants which require certain conditions, can we say, to bring them into bloom. I think we're getting onto the subject of photo periods here. This does potentially make things more complicated and perhaps counts against some of these plants. Tell me what a photo period is and, and what it means for um, certain house plants that are uh, ruled by this for their flowering. Photoperiodism is the you know amount of light that a plant gets. So. There are short day plants, there's day neutral plants or day length indifferent, or there's long day plants. So, you know, our long day plants are the ones that want as much light for as long as possible, like 12, 13 hours a day. And that's most of our annuals, marigolds and all, all those plants outside that bloom, all, all your annuals that bloom all summer long. And then you have like the short day and they bloom as the days get shorter and the nights get longer which really doesn't make any sense, right? Um, poinsettias, cyclamen, calanchoes, all your holiday cactus, your rhizomatous, you know, begonias that bloom in January. And I think that it's also the the change in daylight, but it's also the change in temperature is a different, it makes a difference too. It's getting cooler in the fall. Because I'm like, well, why wouldn't your plants that bloom in the spring as the days get longer, why is that, why don't they get mixed up? But it's because, you know, it's getting warmer <laughs> in the spring and cooler in the fall. I think that makes a, a difference. But I have a friend right now who's got a, who just sent me a picture and she goes, why is my cyclamen blooming right now? Isn't it supposed to be resting? It's summer. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> You've got me. I have no idea. I've seen so many people with uh, hippiastrum, aka amaryllis, flowering this summer. Yeah. I'm saying, what's going on? I said, I, don't, I have no idea. No idea. <laughs> I don't know why it's doing that. I mean, yeah, maybe they're as mixed strange. up as our weather is in this world. I don't know. Maybe. I do love those plants that build up to that big crescendo. Yes. Around a time when perhaps everything else is looking a little bit sad. I got so much joy this east last uh this Easter this year when my Easter cactus finally flowered after several years. And I every everybody who came into the house, including my long suffering family, I'm just like, look at this. It's amazing. Yeah. I can't believe it's flowered. And everyone's like, oh yeah, okay. I thought it looked stunning. I love Easter cactus. Yes. And I love holiday cactus. I, I keep every year I buy more of them and I'm like, what am I doing with all these? I put them all in pots up on the West windowsill, but I, I they're face pots. So they, I want the faces to be towards the room. So probably they only bloom on one side because I didn't turn them. You got to turn holiday cactus to get them to bloom on all sides. Yeah, that is true. And this is one of my advantages of having a glass roofed room because I don't have to worry so much about that because they are getting light from all around, which is that's actually quite handy. I think people also can get in trouble with these 
plant these short day flowers with curtains and things where the plants get blocked from experiencing the normal light cycle by being obstructed an artificial light or is that overplayed in terms of its importance do you think I don't think so I mean with poinsettias I've heard that you know the people that want them in bloom before they would normally be in bloom you know we want our we want our poinsettias at Thanksgiving and our Thanksgiving cactus at Halloween (laughs) so you know they're (laughs) they are they're they have it all down you know they got curtains to cover or whatever you know shade cloths whatever and if someone turns the light on in the middle of the night they got to start all over again with those like 14 to 16 weeks of 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 light you know long nights with poinsettias so i've heard i wouldn't want to be the person that did that that came in and turned on a light or something but i don't i you know <laughs> i don't seem to have that problem with i know people holiday cacti but mine are on the windowsill so maybe they're getting cooler yeah but they yeah. just seem to bloom for me i don't i don't have a problem with them blooming but i also those people that put them in the there you know you'll see stuff on facebook or instagram and they're like well my poinsettia went in the or my holiday cactus i just put it in the closet it's going to stay there for 14 weeks mm. i don't know who thinks that a, something's going to bloom after it's been in the closet <laughs> day and night for 14 weeks but <laughs> i guess with the holiday cactus they've been so extensively bred and there's so been so much breeding work going on that Possibly the stuff on sale now is more adaptable and less fussy than they used to be, I guess. Probably. I think you're probably right about that. I mean, it's quite hard to get hold of an, a Christmas cactus, a true Christmas cactus. I do have some which I managed to get. Unfortunately, they've had root mealybugs, so they're not looking too happy at the minute. But um, they are really lovely. But they're not easy to buy anymore. I don't. You don't see them for sale. It's all these Thanksgiving um, cacti, which seem to be the ones that are available en masse. And I do love some of those pinky, orangey flowers that they have. The sort of the shrimp coloured ones are kind of nice. Mine are all orange. I'm an orange girl. <laughs> and there's some people who will not have an orange flower in their in their garden. And I'm like, orange, pink, yellow, bring it all in. <laughs> I agree. We need this kind of colour and joy in our lives. Exactly. I mean, are there any other things that you can do if your plant is refusing to flower what are the other things that hold them back from blooming well i mean the one thing i have to say though say first is that fertilizer is not going to make your plant bloom you know how people are like oh it's plant food and it's i my plant's not blooming i get this all the time i fertilized it and i and it's still not blooming fertilizer is not what's going to make your plant bloom it's light it's all about the light I mean, mm. it, it will be help it be healthy. And if you buy a bloom booster, which it's a booster, not a food and not a bloom maker, it's just going to make your blooms last longer, maybe be bigger or the stems sturdier to hold them up, whatever. So fertilization is good for your plants, of course, but it's not going to make your plants bloom. So we got that out of the way. So usually it's light and I tell them it's cyclical. So within a year, if your plant has not bloomed, then it needs something, it needs more light. It needs uh, to get colder, I know um, I just I've, I have a couple epiphyllums, not the oxypetalum, just the regular epiphyllums, you know, like the one, the big ones that bloom during the day. Mm-hmm. And I got them from a greenhouse near here where I also got my Christmas cactus. It's a really, really old greenhouse. And um, she's like, I put those on the shelves, the ledges of the greenhouse. Like she has, she has like eaves troughs running down the sides of the greenhouses that she puts plants in. And some of those epiphyllums literally have, they're up against the glass in the cold winter of where I live, where the snow can, you know, it can be, it's so cold. And then they just bloom like crazy. 
So I think that, you know, maybe we're not in our heated homes. It's hard to find a place to keep them cool enough, Mm. you know, where they're always the steady temperature. And I think that dip in temperature helps. It definitely helps cacti. I think that's the thing. Back in the day, one used to have plenty of unheated rooms. (laughs) Most of the house was unheated, uh, apart from maybe like the kitchen and the, the parlor or whatever. But now we're used to this very steady temperature which i guess is why things like phalaenopsis are so popular because they do like that very very steady like 20 degrees centigrade right uh but yeah if you've got if you've got things like epiphyllums as you say they they really need that cold snap to initiate flowering is there also an, an issue with with some plants where it's just not old enough like there's a maturity issue yes i was just gonna say that they're not mature enough right so you know everybody's like if you start it, let for this an example, if you start a citrus from like a lemon or orange or whatever from seed, you may not see flowers for seven, over seven years, you know, or up to seven years, five to seven years. But yet you may have a cutting from a mature plant that could actually, you know, bloom on that cutting. So yes, it has, it, your plant has to be mature. And, you know, with that, a lot of people say, well, it has to be root bound. So when I was writing this book, I got in touch with a man from Michigan State you know, he knew what he was talking about, a professor. And, you know, he's like, yes, root bound. But the point is, is that when your plant's root bound, it's kind of stressed out. So it's not really that it has to be root bound. It just helps because any plant that's stressed out is is going to try to make more of itself. So how does it do that? It flowers, it makes, gets pollinated and it makes seeds. So that does help being root bound. I feel like that's my Hoyas are once, and, and that could also be a maturity thing too, as well, right? Once it's sure it may be in that pot and be root bound a dry period you're going to get a dry period probably because if it's root bound you're not probably not going to be able to keep it as watered as well as it would like and i think there's also that does vary because i know with hoyas you know certain of my hoyas bloomed very young like i'm thinking about uh, uh the one that's given the rather awkward name of afbertonii oh, <laughs> which has got kind of gently fuzzy leaves and butterscotch smelling flowers oh, and that one of mine bloomed really young but then um velosa which i my velosa i've had got from a cutting and is maybe nearly five years old has only just put out its first peduncle which caused great excitement when i came back from holiday i saw that so i'm just <laughs> waiting to see what that's going to look like i got one from logies which is a really old greenhouse in connecticut and it was a i think it's fitchai and that did, and that was a young plant, but it might have been a mature cutting, right? When I got it, but it, it but it, it bloomed pretty much right away, and I was like, oh, this is amazing because my carnosa took forever. This is the thing, isn't it? You never, you never quite know. The other issue that I want to resolve with hoyas is those peduncles sometimes seem to just not make it to a full inflorescence they just drop off i'm thinking that's probably because i'm a bit of an erratic waterer (laughs) and they might be sort of aborting because they're not getting enough water is that your experience i have not i have not i guess i don't have that i mean maybe they fell off and i didn't know but (laughs) (laughs) because i have way too many plants to pay attention too closely you know but um Uh you know the pubicalyx that's the one i have i've never had that i've never seen that happen but well, it doesn't mean it, it seems, doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be a bit of a pattern for me. It also happens with another flowering plant, which 
now this plant, I guess, is the opposite end of the scale on the scent front, which is a Stapelia, Stapelia hirsuta. <laughs> and I've been waiting for this plant because I know the flower is quite dramatic. I know it stinks, yes. but it's quite a dramatic looking bloom that I really want to see. And it, about three times this year, it's put grown these tiny flower buds and I've gone, yay! And then they've dropped off. But I've now increased the water and I've actually put it in in an individual saucer rather than just letting it sit on the tray with all the other cacti so it's holding a bit more water and the buds seem to have stayed so I'm wondering if that is it but um and you know people ask me what the difference with flowering plants is well any plant doesn't want to be completely dried out but if you are erratic with the water which I certainly am you know those flowers if you let because I have an alsobia blooming right now and it is pot bound I went up there to look at it and it was dry and the two flowers around there had brown edges. And I'm like, Oh man. So you got to keep them well hydrated when they're flowering, when they're in bud or yeah, they could just say, well, I don't have the energy. I have to keep my, I have to use my energy to stay alive. So uh, bye-bye flowers because I don't have time to make seeds. I got to just even keep alive to even make more flowers. More from Lisa shortly, but first, some housekeeping and our Q&A. Thanks to all of you who have joined the Patreon clan during the month of August. There were quite a few of you. Emily, Otto, Christine, Claire, Paul, Michelle, Nat and Rachel all became legends. Chloe and Jennifer became crazy plant people and Jessica became a super fan. Thank you so much to all of you. If you want to join that Patreon group, you can access ad-free versions of every episode of the show. Two extra podcast episodes every month called An Extra Leaf and my December mail out. And I'm already thinking about that. I have had some ideas, not quite sure which direction I'm going in. So watch this space. But if you want to find out more about Patreon and other ways to support the show, please check out the show notes at janeperone.com. And question of the week this week comes from Anna, who emailed me with a double header. The first question being, where can I get variegated streptocarpus in the UK? Anna was looking for cultivars like Iced Pink Flamingo and Canterbury Surprise. I am yet to find any sellers selling variegated leaved streptocarpus, I am afraid. I don't think even the famous Dibley's, the North Wales nursery that I love for streptocarpus, do these. If anyone knows any different, please let me know. Part two of the question involved primulinas and streptocarpus. Anna wanted to know if there has ever been a streptocarpus successfully hybridized with a primulina. And again, I was a bit flummoxed on this one, Anna. There are quite a few Gesneriad genera that have been bred together for what we call an intergeneric hybrid, but I'd never heard of these two particular genera, streptocarpus and primulina being crossed in that way. I asked around on some Gisneriad groups and hybridizer Derek Johnson was kind enough to get in touch and explain his knowledge of the situation, which is that it doesn't look like it's going to be possible. He points out that people have often tried to cross Streptocarpus and St. Paulia and 
it's been tried many, many, many times and that's never worked. Derek goes on to say, it looks like primulina typically has 36 chromosomes, while streptocarpus have 32. The chromosome number doesn't determine this, but they are likely very distantly related as they diverge from each other long ago. So that basically means that hybridising them is a huge challenge, if not impossible. I did find a list of intergeneric hybrids that have been produced over the years. Uh, This is a publication of the Gisneriad Council of Australia and New Zealand. I'll put a link to this in the show notes. Some of these I'd heard of, some of them I hadn't. For example, uh, there's Codonanthus, which is Codonanthi crossed with Nematanthus. Um, There's also Gloximania, which is Gloxinia and Seamania, and Gloxinantha, which is Gloxinia and Smithiantha. And then the names start to get even more confusing. There's Sema Caleria, Seamania and Caleria. And I quite also liked Doltricantha, which is Dolbergeria and Tricantha. I don't think I even know what those two plants look like, let alone the intergeneric hybrids. But (laughs) there we go. That was a list from 2010. So there may be some more added to it. It's probably got about, uh, I would say about 20 on there uh, from this list from 2010. I also found a great piece on intergenerics by the lovely Dale Martins, who has been on the show before, which explains how Dale creates some of these intergeneric hybrids and lists some of the the species involved. I will post a link to that as well because I think you might find it interesting. But short answer, Anna, is no, not for the moment. Although never say never when it comes to plants because science is advancing all the time. If you've got a question for On The Ledge, do drop me a line. It's quite simple. Just email ontheledgepodcast at gmail.com. I did get a number of questions stacking up during my break. I'm endeavouring to get round to as many of those as possible. And if you haven't heard back from me, please be patient. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. If I take more than a month, though, do feel free to send me a nudge. And now back to my chat with Lisa Eldred Steinkoff, talking more about flowering plants. Choosing favourites of anything is hard, but are there any absolute favourite flowering plants that you would recommend to anyone who's a hardcore foliage fan? <laughs> Which three flowering plants should they be growing? Well, if you're, if you're a hardcore foliage fan, try some of those variegated African violets, you know, the variegated foliage. Because, I mean, when they're not flowering, which is they are most of the time, if they're being taken care of correctly, then, I mean, you still have that beautiful foliage. And I do love African violets. Like I said, it was grandma's flower and it's special to me and I love it. Phalaenopsis, I mean, who doesn't, I mean, they just bloom forever and they're so easy. They don't need full sun to bloom. They don't even want that. You keep them, you water them, you take them to the sink, you water them once a week or keep them, you know, they're easy. That's the way I look at it. And then, you know, I really have learned to love these Hoyas that are blooming. So I would have to say those are probably my three favorites uh, to see then I love it, it depends on the time of year I love holiday cactus I mean I love them they're probably my favorite and amaryllis last year we own a garden center and some of the amaryllis didn't sell will you think I was going to let those bulbs sit there and rot no at one time on my table I probably had 10 bulbs in flower of these huge beautiful you know flowers I mean wow and that's also easy all everything you need is right in that bulb already 
amaryllis are one of those things that they're showstoppers, aren't they? And I think they're just, they're kind of good. I like them for Christmas because they're kind of, they remind me of Christmas in that they're a bit kind of ludicrous, a bit over the top. Things can go wrong, but at the end of the day, you're going to enjoy them. (laughs) Just how I think about Christmas generally. Yes, exactly. Very much so. But and and I don't know about, you know, in England, but do they have the waxed ones? I think those are so interesting. Yes, (laughs) yes. I've seen those at at the big Dutch flower show, they had all different kinds of wax ones. I kind of feel quite conflicted about them. On the one hand, I can see people who don't like soil. Right. And there are lots of people who just will not have soil in their house. I can see how that would be an attractive option. But at the same time, I kind of, as a sort of a minimalist pragmatist of the houseplant world, I think just, you know, why not just get a normal bulb and stick it in a pot? I know. I mean, and now I've, I've even seen them where they're now, I guess they keep the bulbs, you know, cold in cool storage. And then they have them in, you know, Easter colors. I'm like, oh, come on. You know, like yeah. pale pink and lavender. And so they are, out, you know, can come out later. I'm like, I don't know about that. But I, I did see one that was like frosted. And it was on a little log and it had some greens on it. And I'm like, oh, that's so pretty. So I gave in. Yeah, I think I think they yeah, I can see. I mean, this is how the, you know, the growers get us by realizing that, you know, there are these gimmicks which appeal which are going to appeal. I think the good thing about amaryllis is the range of cultivars that are available now is way better than it used to be. I mean, I do love the big bright red uh one and the apple blossom one that used to be the two amaryllis that you'd get that was basically your choice wasn't it the big red one or the red lion and the apple blossom yeah red lion (laughs) that's it but now there's some really quite delicate spidery ones out there which are kind of fun like the Um, the cybeaster or whatever they're called yeah yeah, those are very cool yeah and you can display them in kind of unusual ways um and i think if you've got children or grandchildren around or even just curious adults, like they are a spectacle watching that, that bud emerge from that massive bulb. I mean, who needs TV? Right. I give a lot of amaryllis as gifts and, you know, I've had friends in, you know, nursing homes, older, older friends. <laughs> you know, you, all you do is you just water it. And you, even if you gave them the wax one, they're going to get flowers and they're going to last for quite a long time. And how fun for them to watch them grow. I mean, you can, practically watch them move and grow they grow so fast so it's it's a wonderful gift i have to admit though i have a track apache track record with getting them to bloom again i oftentimes think oh yes i'm going to put them out in the greenhouse and then they get forgotten in fact i just found one the other day that i'd taken out of the greenhouse when we had our heat wave because it was so hot and put it somewhere else and i've only just found it i'm like oh darn (laughs) I'm not sure this is going to make it. Well, I did actually do that. And they're still, they still have leaves. I did take them out there, but I've, I have not had a, I guess I haven't had a great, um, you know, track record record getting them back to bloom either, but I haven't really put a lot of effort into it because yes. we do own a garden center and there's going to be yeah, bulbs yeah, left yeah. at the end of the year. Isn't that terrible? But I, I do have a lot, but this year I do have about, I have all those ones that bloom. They're out there and they still have green leaves. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Well, hopefully you'll get you'll get some result out of those. I mean, I always try and grow paper white narcissi. My husband, though, going back to scent, absolutely hates the scent. He thinks it's evil. Oh, mine too. He makes them take them out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he thinks the cat has peed someplace. And I'm like, no, 
it's those flowers. He goes, oh, really? You got those in here? I'm like, out, out the door they go. They do smell awful. But there's some that don't. I just never seem to find those ones. It's fun to watch those grow. It's the limited varieties that are available uh i think that holds us back somewhat on those but um well i i would think i would agree with your top three i think maybe that i might substitute the moth orchids with some kind of well maybe with my flame violet the apicia the thing about that though is am i growing it for the flowers or the foliage and i have to say in my heart of hearts much as i love the little bright red lipstick red flowers i think i might be growing them more for the foliage because the foliage really is stunning but they are a double whammy kind of plant that i really enjoy growing i mean i'm a big fan of all gisnerias columnias escananthus uh streptocarpus all of those are amazing we're gonna go deep into those in our, <laughs> our patreon episode i'm looking forward to that but yeah i i mean do you find apicius have you grown apicius do you find them easy because i find them strangely easy despite the books saying they're hard i always it's, wonder what like is it something weird here that i find them easy to grow i don't think i don't think they're hard you can't let them dry out and they get all the crispy things and then they kind of get and, and if you have the ones that are really pink that are like Cleopatra that are more mm-hmm. pink than and white, you have to grow those in a terrarium. I found. Oh, that's interesting. I don't have any of the really pink ones and the ones I have seem to grow fine just in normal air. In fact, they're growing in pots with no drainage and that works for me because as a mean waterer, if they had pots with drainage, they probably would be dead. I probably um, shouldn't try that myself. I always tell everybody yeah. it has to have a hole in it. But I, you know, for, for new plant parents, I think a hole is imperative. But if you're a seasoned plant parent, you probably can look, I mean, like you, you and I, I can look at my fern and tell you if it's going if, to, if it's dry or not, just by the color of the leaves. So we, we can we know a little more about our, about the plant and what it needs. Yeah, it's just, it's just observation, isn't it, really? That's the key. I told you, anybody can have a green thumb. Because today my physical therapist said, I, do, I have a black thumb. I go, but you could make it green. It's all about paying attention to the plant. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We don't like any of that negative talk uh, around here. (laughs) What happens after flowering? This is, I think, where people get a little bit scared when the flowers, you know, on some plants like, uh, I guess, moth orchids and, well, a lot of the gizneriads, they don't necessarily just, the flowers don't just drop off. What do you do? Do you, are you a religious deadheader or do you just let things kind of drop and fall? If I had just maybe 10 or 15 or even 100 plants, that might be pretty easy. But I try to keep up, yeah, especially with the African violets and stuff, because you want to keep those dead leaves picked off because that's a good place for, you know, insects to come, fungus to start. I, you know, it's just better to keep your plants cleaned up. What, what is your, um, when, like on the moth orchid, are you a cut it all the way down when it's done or do you cut it to the second node or the node right below the last flower and let it go again? I'm a kind of look at it and and on the spur of the moment choose between the two. I don't religiously do either. I mean, sometimes you look at it and think this just needs a break and I'm going to cut it right back to the base and give the plant a break to recover because they do flower for such a long time. You think actually the plant needs a chance. Right. But sometimes, like a lot of people, I end up rescuing an orchid from, you know, the supermarket that's been put in the 10p shelf and is going to get chucked out so you rescue it and uh sometimes with those i might just cut that stem back to one of those scaly points and see if it will re 
grow. Right, because it probably would have bloomed longer had it been. Yeah, sure, exactly. Like saying, yeah. So it still has some energy in there. But I mean, I'm quite, I'm quite brutal. If I think to myself, oh, I've only cut back a little way, and then I just get fed up with it, I will just then cut back harshly. <laughs> I, I cut it back because, uh, you know, I, I tell people I went to Longwood Gardens, and I went to a, it was orchid month or whatever. And they had, they had seminars and I went to one and they're like, you know, you're just flowering it to death. It's better to cut it all the way back and let it put all this energy into next year's flowers. So that's what I do. But I say, you know, do whatever works for you. I'm, I, I used to be very, you know, black and white. And now I'm kind of like, do, if it works for you, if you don't want to have drainage in your pot, go for it. If it works for you. Who am I to tell you what to do? <laughs> I mean, especially with flowering, because there really is no wrong answer with that one. Like, I mean, I'm always fascinated by this, you know, the way we worry about pruning plants. And in nature, presumably that stem would just sit there until it was completely brown and then it would eventually get knocked off or pulled off or blown off sometime later without <laughs> without any of this concern. Correct. I have a couple right now that I was maybe going to do a reel about that have brown stems. I'm like, I think it's time to cut those off. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, in a way, at least the plant's getting a chance to kind of withdraw all of the nutrients that are in there for itself. And I will leave it up till it's brown. I'm not going to cut it down so that it reblooms again, but I will wait for it to get brown because even though it's a little tiny piece, it's still green and photosynthesizing for the plant, right? That's very true. Well, I think that pretty much covers all of my flowering houseplant queries. Is there anything else that we haven't mentioned that we should be noting for newbies to the world of flowering houseplants you know just make sure you have an, an, the right light um and if you don't like a, a peace lily i mean mine's in in my bathroom uh, the guest bathroom it's has a window but it's about three feet from it and the window is onto a porch or front porch so it's covered and it still blooms so there is a plant out there that's that's pretty low light in my opinion and it still blooms mm. so you know but just try something try an african violet try a you know, pick up that Phalaenopsis orchid and try to bring it back next year. Um, and if, even if you use it as, even if you don't, it's cheaper than a cut a bouquet of flowers that are going to be dead in a week. Yes, this so. is so true. This is so true. I, I'm, you've reminded me that I'm really desperate to get hold of some variegated uh, African violets, despite the fact I have no time or room for them. <laughs> I know I saw a variegated, someone that was um, this girl that's here on Instagram and she lives near me and she's like, look at this variegated phalaenopsis at the local big box, which I try not to buy anything. I try not to buy too much from a big box because we own an independent garden center. But if I don't find it at the independent garden center, I might run to the big box. And I mean, a variegated phalaenopsis orchid. I had one a long time ago got water in the mm. middle of it and it rotted and I was so so bummed but sometimes you just oh that would be pretty variegated yeah oh, that yes. would even be pretty yes. when it's not blooming <laughs> yeah that's very true that's very true I I don't you don't see many of those unless there's no. sort of chance discoveries yes you have to go to the specialists <laughs> yes yes <laughs> Well, it's been a delight to talk to you, Lisa, and thank you for joining me today. And uh, I'll put all the details of your new book in the show notes. It's out this week, I believe, and we will be continuing to bang the drum for flowering house plants because they're awesome. Thanks so much to Lisa for joining me this week. If you're a Patreon subscriber, you can hear more chat with Lisa Eldred-Seinkoff in 
my extra leaf episode, which you'll find linked in the show notes and also available via your Patreon feed. Thanks to all of you who've been enjoying and subscribing to The Plant Ledger, my email newsletter about the UK houseplant scene. It'll be out again on September the 9th, so you can subscribe now if you haven't already to get that edition. What is it? Well, it's news, events, tips, advice, gossip, fun stuff about anything that's happening with houseplants in the UK. If you subscribe, you get a free guide, in-depth guide, I should say. It's very in-depth to how to deal with fungus gnats, the things that work, the things that don't work, the stuff you need to know. If you go to janeperone.com and click on the plant ledger, you will be able to get signed up. I will see you in a week's time for another episode. Can't wait. Until then, may your enthusiasm for houseplants bloom. Bye. you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by the Joy Drops, The Road We Used to Travel When We Were Young by Komiku, and Namaste by Jason Shaw. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit the show notes for details. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.